We're in Romans 1 today. And last week, if you were here, Jason introduced the book of Romans. Uh, he talked a lot about Paul and about what was going on in the book of Romans. And today we're going to let Paul introduce the book of Romans a little bit more. Uh, and I'm excited to be up here, um, especially with this passage, because it's a good passage. It's got the whole gospel in seven verses. And that's really encouraging to me, because I think when things are hard, or even when they're not, it's good to encourage one another to cling to the gospel. So I think what you'll get today, I hope, if I do my job, um, what you'll get today is the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. What God did in Christ. And boy, if we can accomplish that, it'll have been a good morning. Um, I'll confess first, yesterday I was bathing my dog, and in the process of bathing my dog, she won and I lost, and so my back feels like it's like kind of crooked, and so I can't stand up real straight, but that's okay, right? We can make it through, even if I can't stand up real straight. We'll be okay. Nod your heads. Yeah, good, okay. Um, I have to tell you, too, it feels like the, the past few months have been a little bit like I've been in a fog. Um, are, are you guys busy? Back to school time. You're busy, right? Yeah. Uh, you're, are, do you feel stressed sometimes? Like you got a lot of things going on? Yeah. I felt that way for a couple months, and so when I was asked whether I could maybe preach this week, I was like, yeah, I can do that. We're in Romans, right? And boy, this passage is just a great antidote to stress and fog and discouragement. It's all about what God has done. It's a reminder, Romans 1, 1 through 7, is a reminder of the tremendous grace we have in Jesus. It's an invitation to go back to basics. It's an invitation to hope that's grounded in faith. Boy, that's what we need. Today, hopefully, we're going to hear that over and over and over again. I hope you'll be refreshed and encouraged. If you remember last week, Jason, towards the end of his message, took us through uh, a series of passages called the Romans Road. Are you guys familiar with the Romans Road? Yeah. Um, probably, particularly if you grew up around evangelicalism, you've probably heard the Romans Road a time or two, uh, or a thousand. Uh, I'm gonna, I, I would submit to you that actually these first seven verses of Romans do a better job encapsulating the gospel than even the Romans Road. And the Romans Road does a really good job. So, let's turn with me, if you will, uh, if you've got your Bible, to Romans 1, 1 through 7. We're going to read it, uh, and then I'll pray, and then we'll just talk about it in a few minutes. Romans 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. 
which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray with me that we do well with God's word this morning. God our Father, you are the maker of heaven and earth. Thank you for your words to us through your servant Paul. Please encourage our souls. Please encourage our hearts. Please refresh our affections for you. Show us the gladness that comes through the gospel of your Son today. God, you are holy and worthy of all praise. We're glad to be in your presence, and we ask that you would work through your Holy Spirit in our hearts and draw us closer to you and give us joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So it reads kind of like the introduction to a letter, huh? Nowadays, we, we write, dear sir or madam, especially if you're trying to deal with a business matter, like, say, a magazine subscription that you never really wanted, right, Steve? Uh, dear sir or madam, I'm writing to you today. That's kind of how Paul starts. In fact, if you go and you read all of Paul's letters, Paul kind of does this sort of a thing says, I'm Paul, and here's who I'm working with. You notice that's missing in Romans. In almost every other letter, Paul describes both himself and the people that he's working with. For whatever reason, he chose not to do that for this letter. Um, just Paul. Um, a servant of Christ Jesus. So he's describing himself. Um, and he's introducing himself. Now, the difference between this and most of Paul's introductions is that this one's seven verses, and usually it's two or three. And in that, in that middle section, what you're going to get is the gospel, which is really exciting. We're backing up just to, to draw a little bit from last week. You remember Jason talked about what Paul was into at this point in time? Um, Paul, Paul's a missionary, right? And, and he's been going around. Uh, he's kind of completed, we think, three journeys at this point, uh, and is, is getting ready to hopefully go to Spain. So this is a missionary letter, um, and Jason did a good job of kind of encapsulating that for us. This is a letter to say, hey, I'm coming, uh, and when I come, I hope you can help me to get to Spain. I want to go to Spain. And so that's really what Paul's seeking to accomplish, is, is to let them know that he's coming, but also... To preach the gospel because that's what Paul is always seeking, right? And so let's just work through his, his introduction. Paul launches this letter um, and he's he's been preaching the gospel around and now he's excited he wants to go to Spain. He's going to write this letter. Writing a letter to Rome is kind of a bold move in 60, 70, 80. Um, 
whenever this happens to have happened. Because Rome back then is like what now? What do you think? New York City? Washington, D.C.? Maybe London in, in the mid-18th, 19th centuries, kind of? It's a big deal. It's the big show. It's the center of everything at this point. Paul's like, on the right, to the church at Rome. Let's just tackle that. Um, so Paul, this, this is like, if you were Paul, this would feel like an important letter. Being written to to a very important location geographically, where everything's happening, it's a big deal. So, in order to set the stage for this big long letter, Paul's going to tell them who he is and what's important to him. And these seven verses, I think, have a lot of meaning for us if if we love Jesus. If you're writing to people who know you by reputation and have never met you in person, what kind of letter are you going to write? Well, we know a little bit, right? Because you, especially if you went to Sunday school or Awana or something like that, there are those verses from Romans that you remember, like Romans 3.23. Can somebody say that one? Yeah, yeah. And then Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Yeah. And then Romans 8.1 and 2. That's all the all the kids are probably like singing it. Do you guys know that one? Romans eight one and two. For the laws, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free for the law of sin and death. Praise God! Yeah, Romans eight. So we kind of know we kind of know what the arc of Romans is, right? The the arc of Romans is to lay out the gospel in long format. Right, that's what he's going to do. Uh, and Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by, the testing, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So that's, kind of, that's the arc of Romans, is going to be the gospel and what it means to you. It's gonna. It's it's challenging. The first three chapters of Romans um, are are a little bit of real world. This is what the world is like, and so it's not all gonna be easy, happy news. But Paul starts with the happy news. Uh, it feels to me. Then, and of course, if you know me, you know I work in books and I love books and I'm a big nerd about books feels to me like what Paul does in this in these first seven verses is he he uses an old writer's trick. We call it setting the hook. You know, if you're gonna if if you're gonna do some hard things in a chapter, first you gotta set the hook. You gotta tell people what they're here for, so that hopefully they'll stick with you through this through this thing. So Paul, I think in these seven verses that we're looking at is setting the hook. He's just saying, hold on, this is this is what we're here about. So Paul introduces himself. Paul, right? Paul, okay. It's a start. What does he say next? Servant of Christ. And actually, 
slave is probably a, a better, more thorough translation. Um, Paul is Paul is beholden to Jesus. He he is serving Jesus. He's um, the work he's doing is Jesus' work, and that's amazing, right? Because if you manage to read like Acts one through eight, and you never got to Acts chapter nine. And then you came over to Romans. You think, nah, totally different people. Could not be the same guy. But it is. Paul, who formerly, as Saul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, persecuted the church, held the coats while Stephen was stoned. Paul, that's who's writing this letter to, to Rome. Who's serving Christ. It's amazing. It's important to remember. Like this is the arc that Paul is. This is this is kind of the the narrative of his life is anger and hatred for the church, and then transformation, and then ministry, serving Jesus. Really amazing. Paul ends up being one of the major vessels through whom the the Great Commission is fulfilled in the early church, right? Um, Matthew 28, 19 and 20 say, Go therefore, this is Jesus talking, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Paul's, Paul's a big part of that happening, especially amongst the Gentiles. But who made that change in Paul's life? Paul wake up one day and go, yeah, I want to I wanna do something a little different today. You guys remember? No. He was blinded walking down the road, right? God intervened. God intervened in Paul's life. And this morning, the story we're going to talk about that's bigger is God intervened in the story of history. God intervened. God is at work. God is at work. It's a little surprising that I feel like I've lost all my sense of wonder at that about Paul. I think we read a lot about Paul, uh, especially Western evangelicals. Maybe we read nothing but about Paul sometimes. Because um, he wrote a lot of the New Testament, and he thinks a little bit more the way we think um, in terms of structures. And so we read a lot about Paul. It's easy to forget that, like, the only way Paul ever became Paul was by God intervening in a massive way in his life. I think Paul probably would have been happy to just be a Pharisee his whole day. Like he wasn't looking for anything that day. God intervened and changed everything for him. And so we need to remember that anchors Paul, right? Even when things are hard, Paul's a guy who, who had this experience walking down the road where God spoke to him. The gospel was revealed to him. I don't think he ever lost his sense of wonder at that. We need to be careful not to as well. So Paul, servant of Christ, called to be an apostle. You guys know what apostle means. Um, I think we've probably done this a number of times. In general, it's a messenger. 
uh, but then particularly it's used for for the disciples and Paul, uh, which is interesting. Um, it's used kind of in a special sense for them in that they had um, a special job early in the church's history. Uh, and we know Paul's kind of the anomaly, right? Because he didn't get to be with Jesus while he ministered on the earth. Instead, the gospel was revealed to him as, as one untimely born, or however that passage is read. Um, so it's, it, he's a little bit different, but he's an apostle. He's a messenger sent by God to, to take the gospel. He's a messenger. And what's he set apart for? The gospel of God. What's the gospel? What 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 does that word mean? Do you guys know? Good news. Yeah. Paul's got good news. In fact, his whole life is set apart for this good news. He's got great news. The gospel changes everything. The gospel changed everything for Paul. And I think what the rest of the passage is going to tell us is that the gospel changes everything for us. The gospel changes everything. The gospel of God. Set apart for the gospel of God. So now Paul's going to expound what exactly is the gospel of God. What is the gospel of God? So first, he says, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So whatever the gospel of God is, we've got all of Scripture, the Old Testament is, is what Paul is particularly referring back to, leads up to that. Can I tell you, we've been, we've been doing this book study on Wednesday nights that's about the value of the Bible. Um, I've been reading in Deuteronomy at the same time, and Deuteronomy can be a bit of a slog if you haven't read it lately, probably should, but also tough, right? Because by the time you get to your 14th stoning offense, you're like, holy smokes, what's going on? You're just throwing rocks at everybody. But Deuteronomy is about something more than just throwing rocks at people who do something wrong. It's about way more than that about the separation that exists between mankind and God. But the reality that our sin keeps us from being right with God. So God made special a special way for the people of Israel to be right with him. And even with that, even with the law um, and this kind of special dispensation, if you will, of here's how to engage me, even with that, the people of Israel couldn't keep it straight. The Old Testament is, is this look forward to our need. It's about, it's about our inability to be right with God on our own. No matter how hard we try, we can't be right with God. The Gospel changes everything about how you understand the Old Testament. The Old Testament it's a promise. It's a promise of something to come. It's not empty ritual. It's full of news. It's full of you are separated from God. It's also full of I will make for myself a people. The Old Testament points towards Christ. 
And if your reading of the Old Testament isn't full of Christ, then you're not reading it very Christianly. And I think I'm guilty of that sometimes, not reading the Old Testament very Christianly. Um, now we could maybe get into a long fight about exactly what that means, because I think different people see that different ways. Uh, and I will just confess, I don't know. I don't know exactly what all that means, but I know that Christ didn't come to throw out the law. He came to fulfill the law for us. If that wasn't true, Jesus wouldn't have said it. So God's good news is the story he's been telling through prophets and scripture. What's the good news about? Well, Paul keeps on going, right? Concerning his son. Okay? Concerning God's son. So who was God's son? And this is where Paul, writing to Gentile believers in the church at Rome, Starts to starts to kind of open up the Old Testament for us, right? So, good news about God's Son that He's promised beforehand through His prophets and the Holy Scriptures. Now, His Son was descended from David according to the flesh. He was descended from David. Why is that significant, right? Okay, we're writing to people who don't really know very much about who David is. Why is Paul going to go out of his way? Here's why. This is 2 Samuel 7, 4-17. This is a prophecy that was given to David by the prophet Nathan. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will, will plant them there, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people of Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And in accordance with these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. 
So we've got this prophecy, right? Now, many of you have read what happened to Solomon, and then you know that after Solomon, stuff got actually really bad. Kingdom splits. Um, slavery happens. Never again to Egypt, which, by the way, is part of God's promises to Moses that your people will never be slaves in Egypt again. But instead, they end up in, in Babylon and Persia, and stuff goes wrong, right? So, this happens a lot in prophecy, is, is that you get kind of multiple layers of fulfillment. Solomon would have heard that and been like, that's about me. And when things went okay for Solomon, he would have been like, see, it's being fulfilled. But God has a much broader promise for David that his kingdom will endure, that will be established forever, right? That didn't really seem to come to fruition because pretty much immediately after Solomon, the kingdom gets split and things go bad. So why is Paul now saying, Jesus descended from David. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to David. Right? And like Steve was talking about this morning, the already not yet stuff, Jesus has fulfilled those promises from the Old Testament. And Jesus will fulfill those promises from the Old Testament. A kingdom that endures forever. That's what we that's what we hope for, that's what we wait for, that's coming, that's going to be real. It's already real. He's already conquered sin and death, and he's seated in heaven on his throne beside God. Right now, maybe you've had the kind of week where you're going, boy, I'm not experiencing that at all. But you will. It's so significant that Jesus is descended from David, that Paul's writing about it even to people who aren't that intimate with who David is, right? He's saying to the people at Rome, the people in the church at Rome, hey, it matters. He's descended from David. You should find out who David is and what was going on with David. What, what was that about? And man, if you go back and look at God's promises to David, God's promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, God's promises to Moses, you know... That in the Old Testament, there are these things that God says he's going to do. There's this story that he's writing, this big arc, that he's going to make for himself a people. And you know that if you read it from a human perspective, it feels like it's just always being thwarted. Like over and over again, it just doesn't happen. They go into slavery in Egypt, and then they come out. <laughs> and... If you read Abraham, he goes to Egypt, comes out, goes to Egypt, comes out, and then Jacob ends up going to Egypt and staying for a while, and then they come out. Just over and over again, it seems like, what's happening? I mean, did God not say he'd make, he'd establish his people, and did he not tell Abraham they'd be like, stand, stand? Paul's pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment of, of the promises to David. God is God is going to make good on his promise. So he's so again just to just to keep us up with where Paul is. God he's got good news about the gospel of God, which was promised beforehand through the prophets and holy scripture about his son, 
who is descended from David according to the flesh. And if you, just to touch on it real briefly, there's actually two genealogies for Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, the the kind of where modern scholarship has landed on that is that probably one of those traces Mary's line and one of those traces Joseph's line. So both trace back to, G, or to David. Um, and so however you want to dice that, uh, whether through his mom or through his dad, Jesus is a descendant of David. So in a really very real way, just like I am the descendant of John McKay, who's the descendant of John McKay, and on back, uh, I think there were a lot of John McKay's. Jesus is the real descendant of David. Um, but more than that, Jesus is the fulfillment of those huge promises that God made to David. And we haven't seen all that, but we've seen some of that. So he's descended from David, according to the flesh. And this is where it gets so good. And he's declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Here comes the hero of the age. Declared in power. Christ is risen from the dead. Paul later says in 1 Corinthians, or earlier says in 1 Corinthians, depending on how exactly that went down, Christ wasn't raised from the dead. We are of all men to be most pitied. Christ is risen. He conquered sin and death. He's our hope. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of Holiness, by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. The, those are the most significant words you can ever preach. And of course, it, there's so much context that Paul's going to dive into as we go through Romans. He's going to establish that that we're all sinners. Everybody sins and everybody is affected by the consequences of sin. And that God, in his perfect timing and plan, sent Christ to be the propitiation for our sins. He's going to cover all that. But Christ's position as the Son of God has been declared in power by the Spirit of Holiness. That's a weird phrase a little bit. We hear a lot about the Holy Spirit, but this is the only time that it's Spirit of Holiness instead. Um, and so I kind of dug in on that a little bit. Um, and here's the best suggestion that I read, and I'll just read it. Um, dealing with the dead was dirty business. When King Saul wanted to commune with the dead, he went to the Witch of Endor. And it was a secretive and kind of illicit business. It's kind of like, you know, let's not... But actually, it was the official turning point when, when Saul's kingship was, was definitely going to be over with. Um, Mediums and diviners and sorcerers were an abomination in Israel. When the dead are dead, you leave them alone and you don't have dealings with them. Seances were and are unlawful for believers. Dealing with the dead has been kind of black magic, not a beautiful, clean, holy thing. It's anything but. 
talk of an executed dead man being raised from the dead must have sounded to many ears absolutely horrible and gross and dirty and unclean like dark sorcery and black magic. Over against this, Paul lays stress on the exact opposite. Christ was raised from the dead in accord with the spirit of holiness. Not a dark spirit, not an evil spirit or a defiled spirit, but the very spirit of God himself who is marked above all by holiness. He was not defiled in raising Jesus. It was a holy thing to do. It was a bright and good and clean and beautiful, God-honoring, not God-belittling thing. It was holy. So, really, the, the best explanation of that is that Paul's saying this is not like, not like wickedness. This is the opposite. This is God changing the story of history in holiness, raising his son from the dead, with the penalty for sin having been paid. And so Paul continues. Just exactly who was declared to be the Son of God in power? Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ. That's who Paul's talking about. That's, that's where this whole book of Romans is going to be grounded. And then Paul says he's received some things from Jesus. What does he receive? Grace. And that's the same thing that we get from Jesus, the same grace. Grace from God that overcomes the power of sin and death, the grace that saves us, the grace that Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 talks about. And then Paul also receives apostleship. He's a special messenger. And in Acts, we read about that, right? Paul goes to Jerusalem, meets with the, the church fathers, and kind of gets the stamp of approval on, on his apostleship, you know. Yeah, this is the same gospel that we're preaching. Make sure you take care of poor people. That's basically what Paul hears when he goes to, to Jerusalem. Yeah, that's the right gospel. Don't forget to take care of poor people. Paul says it's the very thing he wanted to do. He's received apostleship to do what? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, God's name among all the nations. Bringing the gospel of Jesus to all the nations including those who are called in Rome to belong to Jesus Christ. And then he's got these beautiful words, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a greeting, you know, dear so-and-so, greetings to you. It's a greeting. Man, it's more than just a greeting. It's a promise. It's delivered on the back of the gospel. On the back of the Son of God, descended from David, the recipient of all those promises, grace and peace to you. So there are two stories that are that are happening here in this in these first seven verses. One is the story of Paul, right? Story of a murderer story of a, of a persecutor. And that story is changed by the intervention of God through the Holy Spirit. Everything changes for Paul. And then there's the story of the universe. Right? This, this story that of, of sinful mankind, us, the story of God pointing forward towards his son through 
through David, who was a, a good king, um, but not everything went right. Through Solomon, who was a good king, but really where stuff started to turn. Uh, through the people of Israel, going back into slavery and then back out. All the way up to Jesus, where finally God transforms the story of history. We can be redeemed, made right with God. And now Paul's taking that story to Rome, writing that story to Rome. The gospel transforms the world. Do you see the way that, that that transformation of that whole huge story of history is really echoed in what happens to Paul? It's echoed in what happens for you and me, what the gospel does for us. It's all one big echo of what God is doing for the universe and through human history. What does that mean for you? Right? Okay. Cool. Gospel, David, Jesus, transformation. What does that mean for us? A few things. We have a common gift. So we, like Paul, receive grace. So a gift in common. If you believe in Jesus, you have received grace. That changes everything. It changes everything. You're no longer due the penalty of your own sin. Instead, you're an heir with Christ of all God's riches. It's amazing. That changes everything. It changes everything. So we have a common gift. We have, we have grace, just like Paul. We have a great Savior, the Son of David, the fulfillment of all God's promises in the Old Testament, the Son of God. We declare it to each other because God declared it to the world. Power. How? He took a dead man from the grave and resurrected him. That, have you ever seen that? Not yet, but you will. That's amazing. It changes everything. Jesus rose from the, for real, Jesus rose from the dead. We believe that. Jesus rose from the dead, conquered sin, conquered death, and then he walked with the disciples, he ate with them, the 500 people saw him, and then he ascended into heaven, and right now, he reigns in the heavens. It's amazing, it changes everything. It changes everything that Christ rose from the dead. God has done this is Romans 8, 3 and 4. God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He rose from the dead, and his throne will be established forever. That promise to David of a, of a forever throne that is coming. That's going to happen. So we've got, a co we've got common grace. We, we share the same grace. We're the same Savior. We need to cling to the grace that comes through the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ.
We need to cling to the peace that can only come through the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to echo the proclamation that Christ is the Son of God. I hope we can echo it powerfully. God declared it in power. He didn't just do a little thing. He did a big thing. He did the biggest thing. Conquered sin and death. And because of that, we receive everything. John MacArthur tells a story. There was an extremely wealthy man who possessed vast treasures of art. The man had one son who was a very ordinary boy who passed away in his adolescence in obscurity and had little effect on anybody. He reached a certain age in his life and he died rather unexpectedly. The father mourned the son greatly. and Within a few months after the death of the son, the father died as well. He left his incredible wealth bound up in our treasures. He left a will and he said everything was to be auctioned. Strangely enough, in the will, the father stipulated that one particular painting had to be auctioned first. And it was a painting of his son done by a mediocre artist. Not anything special, but a painting of the son that he loved in ordinary. So the auctioneer has the unenviable task of, of starting the auction, knowing that everything beautiful and wonderful is back there. This is where he's got to start the auction. So he, big crowd assembles and he starts the auction. Here's this painting. We're going to auction starting here. No one knew the boy. No one knew the artist. No one really cared. A long time passed without any bid at all. Finally, an old servant of the house of the wealthy man came forward and said he would like to place a $1 bid on the portrait of the son whom he loved very much. And at that point in his life, that was all he could afford, just a dollar. There were no other bids, and so the auctioneer, as auctioneers do, declared the auction closed. That piece has been sold. So the servant purchased the, this, this, this not-so-beautiful painting for a dollar. Then the dramatic moment came as the auctioneer read the next portion of the will. It said... All the rest of the treasure shall go to the one who loved my son long enough and strong enough to purchase his portrait. There is no way for us to comprehend the riches of, Jesus, the riches of God through his son Jesus. It just isn't. They're infinite. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. The Bible says, I has not seen nor ear heard the things that God prepared for those who love him. And this is the good news. It's hard to hang tight to that. It's hard when you've got the cares of the world kind of riding on your shoulders, when you're tired, when you're weary, when your back hurts, when you can't stand, when you just want to give up. It's hard to hang tight to that. It's hard to hang on to the promise of a forever throne for the descendant of David, for Jesus. Hard to cling to that. Especially in the light of the reality that we just can't comprehend what it is that God's promised us. What it is we'll receive. But we will. We will have a spring of water that will never cease to bubble up. 
We'll have life that will never end. We'll have faithfulness that will never be removed. We'll have a gift, a gift that will never be lost. We'll have a chain that will never be broken. We'll have a love from which we cannot ever be separated. We will have a calling that will never be revoked, a foundation that will never be destroyed, an inheritance that will never, ever fade away. The gospel changes everything. The Son of God, sent from heaven to be among us, to go to the cross, to pay the penalty of our sin, to rise again in power, to ascend with his Father. That changes everything. And boy, if you feel this week like, does it really change anything for me? I would just encourage you to cling to Jesus. Because I've had those weeks. You've probably had those weeks. And maybe having that week. Cling to Jesus. Because the Son is coming again. And when he comes again, it'll be different. Because he'll be the King. He is the King. The recipient of the promises to David. And his death, burial, and resurrection changed everything for you. It changed everything for you, and like Steve pointed out this morning, it will change everything for you. Even if you don't see it just yet. That's coming. We have a sure hope in Christ. It's the Gospel. It's the Gospel in the first seven verses of Romans. Next week we'll dig into what comes next, but this week I just hope, I hope you'll go from here, I hope you'll eat here, but after you eat here and, and hang out together, I hope you'll go from here encouraged that Christ is risen, and in that you can have full confidence. And if Christ is risen, he is coming back. God has changed the whole world, the whole course of history, through his son Jesus Christ. Pray with me and we'll be done. God, our Father, thank you for the great gift of your Son, Jesus. Thank you for the grace we receive through him. Thank you that you saw fit to change the story of the world. Thank you that you love us, and that it's because of that love that you, that you save us. God, you are gracious to us. We are not deserving, but we love you. We long for we long for heaven. We long for restoration. Thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you. Amen. All right, stay and eat with us. Um, thank you. <laughs>